cordonazo. So welcome to the beginning of a four-day retreat. First two days emphasis on shamatha, three different methods, I think you've heard of them. And second two days, final two days on the four measurables. That'd be a very nice balance, yeah? Good retreat. And we can actually talk during the latter two days because that helps with the four measurables. Yeah? Oh yeah, so a little bit of wrap-up. This morning will be, of course, a one-hour session if you have enough questions to fill the hour. We'll see. But there's one point I've not touched on yet, which is very, very meaningful. And to my mind, also has an extraordinary aesthetic quality to it, just a sheer beauty to it, Dharma beauty. And that is, as I've gone through, as we've all gone through, the four measurables, we've looked at their far enemies, their near, near enemies, and so forth. And so we see how each one has its own kind of elegance, its own structure, and, and really its own logic, right? Um, and over the course of the last seven to eight weeks, we've also seen something of the, of the meaningful sequence of starting with loving kindness, then going to compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. But then also, then when we shift into another whole dimension of Mahayana, how with that equanimity platform, the culmination of kind of the Shravakayana approach to the four measurables with equanimity, that now you're poised to make, oh, the words are awful, a great, a great leap forward, a great leap forward into Mahayana where you start with great compassion, which as I've mentioned before is the real catalyst, that which seems to arouse, to kindle, to spark or catalyze your own Buddha nature. And then from there into great loving kindness, great empathy or empathetic joy, and then finally great equanimity, and then culminating in bodhicitta, right? But what I've not spoken about is how, on the one hand, not only is there a sequence among these four or these eight, but there's also a really very creative, very therapeutic, one could say, uh, dynamic amongst the four, which then, like a lattice structure, puts them in the interconnection with each other. And this is unveiled. This, I, I, I was first introduced this to, uh, in a text by Long Chemba, I believe it was, by Long Chemba, the great Dzogchen master. But in conjunction with the Theravada, because the two really dovetail here. So the first point here is when we attend to loving kindness, loving kindness, a little pop quiz, anybody at all, first hand that goes up. What's the false facsimile? And this is something I must say, these four, the four aspects of each of the four, they're really worth memorizing. It's not just like a quiz or some kind of intellectual knowledge you'll store away and then forget about. It has a lot of practical, val practical value. So with that in mind, what's fa fa the false facsimile for loving kindness? Go ahead, Gudo. Self-centered attachment, yes. Self-centered attachment it is. And there's so much richness there. I mean, isn't there? There's so much richness in seeing that how one can be mistaken for the other. But if you do, then you've, you really have, you've charted another course. You're heading off to another continent. Uh, and that is the self-centered attachment is a continent that goes around and around in a circle. And loving kindness goes off to enlightenment. So those are really very different navigation charts. Um, so self-centered attachment, we, know, we all know about it now. We're very familiar with it, both in terms of our own experience, I presume. I, I'm hoping I'm not the only one here. Misery likes company. Um, but also the conceptual understanding that we derive from Buddhism. And then we see, all right, there's, 
there's a problem, self-centered attachment, where we just start focusing in on I, me, mine, and the, the other people kind of fade out. I'm going to probably quote for what, the 20th or 30th time, for the moment what we tend to is reality. And if the thoughts that fill our minds, where our attention is directed, are really focusing just habitually and overwhelmingly on our own concerns, our own past, our own present, our own future, our own I, me, mine, that's just the way it's going to be. That's good. That is what, for us, will turn out to be real. And those people, or individuals, or places, situations, and so forth, that we do not attend to, they will fade out. It's just kind of a psychological fact. Not that they're any less important, or, or that they're any less real, of course, but for us, from our perspective, from our own center and our own mandala, that which we don't attend to, just isn't very real. So as William James says, it slips off to an epiphenomenal status and then off to the land where footless fancies dwell. Like sheer fiction, right? And so when we're cultivating love and kindness, if it goes astray, then that's likely the place it will go astray into. But then happily among the four immeasurables, there's one that is the direct remedy for it. That is, cultivate this, and it will overcome that. It's kind of a built-in antidote within this fourfold matrix, and that is equanimity. Equanimity. When you're practicing equanimity, you're, you are attending to yourself. You're not counting yourself out. This is not kind of a uh, what's the word? Martyr or martyr syndrome. Well, never mind me. I'll just I'll just take care of you folks. Never mind me. I'll just be a doormat. No, not that. It never, never came up, right? In each of these four, you might recall we start with the self, even with equanimity. Can you like all of your own manifestations? Can you not only like, can you love, can you care for all of your own manifestations throughout the course of your life thus far and throughout the course of this day and tomorrow and so forth? Gnarly, pleasant, unpleasant, virtuous, non-virtuous. Can you develop an ongoing sense of loving kindness for yourself? So there it is, equanimity. Equanimity where we're attending to all the facets of ourselves, but of course, overwhelmingly, more important, frankly, is we're attending to others and we're doing our best to attend to them equally. And so that those who are near, those who are far, those who are, how do you say, agreeable and disagreeable, virtuous and not virtuous, beautiful, not beautiful, and so forth, that we're attending to all of them equally, not with a bland, cold stare, but with an open heart, with affection, with warmth, with kindness. And so that all these people around us are equally real, each recognizing each one as the center of their own mandala. Right? Each one, so important. Each one, so tremendously of value. And so there it is. When your cultivation of loving kindness goes astray, then equanimity is right there to help out, to bring it back on course. Right? It saves it, it rescues it. Equanimity is the savior of loving kindness when it goes astray and falls into self-centered attachment. It's quite brilliant, actually. And then compassion. Compassion. Now, let's just go to equanimity. What happens? So equanimity is kind of the backup, the protector. Just like introspection guards your shamatha practice, guards your mindfulness, equanimity guards, takes care for, that is, remedies loving kindness when it goes astray. But then. Does equanimity ever go astray? Does it go off track, fall into its own false facsimile? And I think the answer is obviously yes. And what is that false facsimile? Somebody besides Gudo? Yes, go ahead, James. Stupid or aloof indifference. Oh, I love it. And the way you said it, really kind of like, stupid or aloof indifference. 
the intonation was also very good. <laughs> there it is. And, we, and that needs no explanation. We, we all get it. I think we've already experienced it. Conceptually, it's dead easy to understand. And so, but we have this magnificent, this jewel, this culmination of the four measurables, like the extravaganza, there's equanimity, and then it falls flat on its face, like a person jogging along or running a marathon, and just actually going face down in the mud. So, you know, that's what happens to equanimity when it slips into aloof or stupid indifference. Yeah. Oh, it's embarrassing. I mean, you had so much promise. And there you are, just covered in mud, face down. So sad. So who's going to, rec who's going to rescue? Who's going to rescue equanimity when it falls into aloof indifference? Cold-blooded indifference. What will move it? What will arouse it? What will stir that heart that's grown cold? Go ahead, etc. Uh, Compassion is it, yes. Compassion is attending to others, oneself and others, but it's attending especially to our situation and our vulnerability to suffering. And I think for almost anybody, perhaps barring maybe the psychopath or a person who's really mentally deranged in one way or another, it's very hard to closely attend to someone else who's clearly suffering and not feel moved. I think it's hard. I think for those like professional torturers and so forth, that takes a lot of training. Like we've had seven, eight weeks of training here to cultivate an open heart. I think that takes some training. Training. It happens in racism when you learn how to look at another race in a way that you say, well, they're simply animals or they don't have feelings like us. And therefore, even though they appear to, you know, don't take it that seriously. Don't, don't worry. It's really okay. But that doesn't come naturally. I think, I think my, my very strong sense is that racism of any sort is a learned mental affliction. I don't think we're born with it. And then Descartes, for all of his brilliance, uh, boy, when it came to animals, I think he really hit his, his nadir, his lowest point in, in the whole display of his very brilliant mind. And that is denying that animals even have feelings, that they're even conscious. And so they're just mindless machines. And I presume he couldn't have had a pet, and definitely not a dog. So there it is. So, but if you have that attitude towards animals, they have no feelings, they really. Or as Jane Goodall, when she started her, her training in, uh, in zoology, primatology at, at Cambridge, she was told that um, the chimpanzees have no emotions, as I recall. No emotions. Because to think that they have emotions back then, this is what, 40 years ago, would be to anthropomorphize them. Beginning kind of too emotional, too poetic, too ushigushi. But these are scientists, you know. We only look at the facts. The facts, and the facts is the chimpanzee moves from here to there. You give it a stimulus, it responds. Give it another stimulus, it responds. But let's not get carried away. They're not like us. They're just, you know, they're just animals. And so one has to learn that as well. Because every child knows that its puppy loves them. The puppy is happy. The puppy is sad. And they make it really obvious. Go ahead. What, what, what's up, Marie? Sure. Thank you. I'm glad you made yourself known. So, so there it is. Unless we learn how to not attend or attend in such a way that our heart remains sealed because we refuse to acknowledge the obvious, and that is animals, human beings, and for that matter, a wide variety of other sentient beings, do experience suffering, have, have desires for at least pleasure, perhaps joy, perhaps 
happiness and fulfillment. Unless we've been trained otherwise, compassion is the natural remedy for equanimity that's gone south, that's gone astray. Simply by attending closely, and it can be by in one's personal life, it can be through reading, it can be through listening to the radio, to watching the television, to reading the internet, and so forth. But it does tend to, tend to arouse us from the stupor of aloof indifference. When he says, boy, I may be indifferent about myself, but boy, they're sure not indifferent about their well-being. For just as one example, what is that? I think the number is up to 34 or so Tibetans who've burnt themselves alive just over the last number of months. It's a pretty strong statement. Pretty strong statement. Why not just hold up a banner or write an email? Why do that? There must be something behind that, right? Now, how can one not be moved by that? You have to learn. You have to learn not how not to be moved by that. Some people have become very professional at that. So there it is. So compassion rescues equanimity. But as is so obvious, this is really one of the most obvious ones, is compassion can also go astray. And it goes astray into just sheer sadness, slipping into grief, slipping into despair, where then one becomes an object of other people's compassion, but one really can't do much in the world because one is so overwhelmed, so overburdened by one's own grief. And so there you are, it's gone astray. It may look on the outside with the tears, the sympathy and so forth, expressions of sorrow for other people, or perhaps for oneself for that matter, self-pity. Uh, it may look like compassion, but of course it's not. It's, it's, a, it's a near miss. It's a near miss. But an all-important near miss, because it just leads to self-perpetuation rather than liberation. Right? And so who will come to the rescue of compassion when it falls into grief and despair? Guy, what would you be, be your guess? We, we're narrowing them down so it's a process of elimination. Among the four immeasurables. Which one's going to rescue compassion when it falls into grief and despair? If you guess wrong, it doesn't matter. No, it's a good guess, but wrong. So there, therefore, Marcus, empathetic joy. And we'll see why. It's, it's a good guess. And that's, it's, it's not really false. It's just like not as true as it could be. And so empathetic joy, but that's exactly it. And that is, with compassion, we are focusing on others, not only their sorrows, but may we all be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. So we're not only looking at the sorrow, the grief, the pain and misery in the world, but we're also attending to the underlying causes. And you become more sensitive to it, witnessing Witnessing the, the extent to which we sentient beings, unfortunately, it's not just other people. I'd like to be on the side that not, part, not party to this, but I'm right in the midst of it. But those of us who are continuing to perpetuate our own and other suffering by means of our own delusion, our craving, our hostility, all the other mental afflictions, and all the behavior that's aroused by such mental afflictions. So in focusing on that, on focusing on the extent of greed, just sheer stupid, short-sighted greed, of mindless malevolence, of just sheer idiocy, including by people who are, have en wield enormous influence in the world. And sometimes you just kind of wonder, what? Shouldn't there be some kind of an entrance exam to be able to be elected to office, like basic sanity? But that's not one of the prerequisites, right? 
There isn't one. To become a, post, a postal carrier, now that you have to pass an exam. To deliver letters, you have to pass, I'm sure you have to pass an exam, because that's true for civil, civil service, I think, all the United States, right? To be a secretary in a US government office, I'm sure you have to pass an exam, you have to qualify. But to run for office, oh crap, if you, you know, if you got a, if, if, if you got a birth certificate, that's pretty much enough, right? And that's been demonstrated many times in US politics. So it's easy to become very cynical. Oh, it's awfully easy. <laughs> <laughs> and then cynicism just falling and again, grief and despair. And so is that the whole picture? Foolishness in politics, greed, hatred, delusion in the world, and all the stuff that comes out of it, all the violence, all the exploitation, the dishonesty, and so forth, is that a fair and, and complete description of what's going on in the world? And it may be fair, but it's not complete. And that's where the empathetic joy comes in with very selective attention, but attending to the joys in the world and the underlying causes of virtue, focusing there, taking delight in it, arousing an emotion. Just as grief and despair is an overpowering emotion, so is empathetic joy and delight and emotion. So fight fire with fire, right? And so bring in another emotion that overwhelms the contrary. So empathetic joy comes to the rescue, balances out, and said, yes, that's true. I acknowledge that's true, but here's another truth that you are blind to right now because you're caught in a refractory period, and you're seeing only in the negative, and that's not the whole picture. So I'm not trying to give a rosy, I'm not trying to put rose-tinted glasses on what you're seeing. I'm just seeing, I'm saying, you're not seeing the whole picture, and this picture is equally important. It's equally important. Here lies the promise for the future. And so empathetic joy comes to the rescue of compassion when compassion falls into despair. Then you'll recall, and now we have only one left, so we'll be able to guess this one. Empathetic joy, when it goes astray, what does that fall into? Oh, yeah, meek. Not hedonic pleasure. Enjoyment. This, oh, you mean, you, you mean I can't enjoy lunch today? Because I'm following into a fa false facsimile of empathetic joy? So I put, put on a real scowl when I get into the cafeteria? I'm a former monk. <laughs> I don't like food. And I will not enjoy it. <laughs> not quite. You're very close. But it's, it's, a, it's an all-important miss. Sally, what's missing? What's the false facsimile of empathetic joy? that actually makes it really something that leads you astray. And certainly enjoying a good meal, enjoying fr the friendship, enjoying the beauties of nature, beautiful music, and so forth and so on, that's, that's not an affliction. Nowhere in all of Buddhism is that said to be an affliction, a mental affliction, a problem, non-virtuous, nowhere, ever. Right? So what's the problem? Concentrating on it. Well, if you're eating, I've, I've lived at IMS, Insight Meditation Society, for five months, and man, when those people eat, they are fully, and I say this only with respect, but they are really single-pointedly focusing on eating. Mindfully eating, masticating, swallowing, fork coming up, fork going down. Very, very mindful, so they're concentrating on it. That can't be a problem. That's good practice. Oh, yeah. Uh, somebody who's not had a hand up. Jane, yes, what's up? Sharing, sharing the mutuality of good fortune, of good fortune. 
Yes, but what, that's, that's, the right, that's the right answer to a different question. Um, <laughs> because the question is, what's the false facsimile of empathetic joy? The false facsimile, that's what looks like it, but is not. It really is not, and can easily be mistaken for it. Can't hear you. No, that's diametrically opposed. The false facsimile is that which looks like empathetic joy. No, false, that's false. So, oh, this is not that difficult. Lakshmi, what's up? Okay, go ahead, Lloyd, you're on. Lloyd? Okay, that's good enough, sure, and I'll just paraphrase it. Attachment to, it's a simple word. Attachment to hedonic pleasure, right? It was on Mia, tip, of, nip, tip of Mia's tongue, I'm sure. Attachment to, fixation on, thinking this is it, I found the good life, look at my new Porsche. I am a successful man, I'm a happy man, because anybody, that's called a, what do they call it, young people? That's a chick magnet. Look at my chick magnet. I tend to think of poultry myself, but some people, you know, have different ideas. But that's exactly it. Fixation, attachment, total absorption in the pursuit of the hedonic pleasure. Yeah, that's where the problem is. Yeah. Not simply enjoying it, but this is the good life. This is the good, and it'll be better if I have twice as much. And it'll even be better three times as good if I have three times as much, because that's the path of happiness. More and more and more, consume more, poop more, consume more, poop more, and that's the good life. In the end of life, you can look back on the pile of excrement you left by. Wow, that's a big pile of, hmm. You must be really, really successful. Right? So there it is. Feels good, but of course, there's your house supported by timbers that are completely saturated by termites. So it's, it's an error, so it's erroneous. But again, the person will be experiencing, oh, isn't life wonderful? I'm so grateful all that I have. Or oh, you have two great, they don't. Well, you know, um, give us tax breaks. Give us lots of tax breaks. And you know, we'll hire you at minimum wage. And it will trickle down. Just, it'll trickle down. You have to be patient, though. We don't. But you have to be really patient. I love that trickle down. As long as you're the trickler and not the trickly. So who's going to come to the rescue of empathetic joy when it just goes into fixation on the hedonic? And it's the most interesting one in terms of the remedies. It's not obvious. And now that we're coming to it at the end, there's only one choice. But if I ever forget, this is the one I tend to forget because it's not just intuitively obvious, but then when you get it, that is, I can say first person, when I get it, I say, oh, that's, wow, I really get it. That's really satisfying. That's a good remedy. And the remedy is loving kindness. Because loving kindness, when it is wise, is not simply wishing, may I and you, may we all have hedonic pleasure and the causes of hedonic pleasure, namely money, wealth, and influence. Money, money influence, and prestige or money, power, and prestige, they'll all give you the hedonic. Uh, loving kindness, when it's wise, is attending to the actual causes of happiness. While hedonic, has, hedonic well-being is very important, looking deeper and wishing, may we all find hedonic and genuine happiness and the causes of genuine happiness. And as we attend to that, we really bring wise, loving kindness to ourselves. Then that, in a very gentle and loving way, kind of eases out 
the fixation on hedonic, because we see that's really not in my best interests. If I want to be happy, that's not the way to find happiness, to be totally invested in the pursuit of hedonic pleasure. Uh, that's where all the smoke and mirrors are. That's where the empty rituals of happiness are. The person looks happy, and meanwhile, they're not happy at all, but they're putting on a really good show. Just like empty rituals in religion, there are empty rituals in materialism, and that's it. Look how happy I am. Look at all my stuff. And so loving kindness comes in this very benevolent way, this gentle way, not whacking it with meditation and suffering or meditation and impermanence, which have their value, but in a very gentle way. It says, you know, you on your fixation on hedonic pleasure, you're focusing there because you want to be happy. You know, I can give you a little tip here. That's not going to work out very well, not in the long term, but this will work out really well. So why don't you really love yourself wisely and then extend it to others and loving kindness comes to the rescue. And so there they are. And then we see when loving kindness goes astray, it falls into self-centered attachment and, we, and we, we go the circuit around. And so we see it's an enclosed system, just like with the five jhana factors counteracting one by one the five obscurations. It's an internally consistent, and it's a self-healing system, a self-healing system. As you're practicing shamatha, developing the five jhana factors, they in turn counteract one by one, and we've seen it, the five obscurations, the five hindrances, and likewise among the four immeasurables. When it, any one of them goes astray, there's another one right there to heal it, to balance. So it's, it's I just find it beautiful. I just, I just bow. I find it so beautiful. So I'll end with a metaphor. We're not going to have time for, for a question and answer this morning, but this is, this is the one final talk on the four measurables that I have in mind, and it's an, a really important one. Now, so all of that was classic Buddhism, and I think extremely meaningful. And now I'll just uh, end with a, an image, which I like, some people have found helpful. If you don't, it's no big deal. But if we use a metaphor that is so common in Buddhism, the metaphor of the vehicle, a vehicle, along a path to our own fulfillment, genuine happiness, liberation, awakening. If we use that metaphor of our lives, our lives devoted to dharma, let's say, as a vehicle, then what are the motivating forces? What moves us ahead? What draws us forward? It has to be something having to do with, in, with aspiration, right? with motivation, with desire. If they don't move, if there's no desire, we'll just sit. Until there's some desire, we don't move, right? We don't move from our cushion, but we also don't move through life unless we're, we're drawn by something, some vision, either to escape from something in the past or to move towards something in the future. And so there's the vehicle. So what shall draw this vehicle? This vehicle of dharma, dharmayana. I just coined a term, dharmayana. So the vehicle of dharma itself, a dharma as a way of viewing reality, behaving, meditating, practicing, that leads to genuine happiness for ourselves and others. For this dharmayana, what will be pulling this great vehicle. And I can't imagine any four steeds, any four chariot pullers better than the four measurables. So if we think of those as being like four mighty steeds, great horses, powerful horses, then here's the image. Imagine four pulling them, the four measurables. And out in front, the horse on the left and the right and the front, the horse on the left is the horse, the great steed of loving-kindness. Just to its right is the steed of compassion. And just behind loving-kindness is equanimity. And just behind compassion is empathetic joy. So you're leading with love and compassion, love and compassion. When you, when you, when you come around the corner 
and somebody sees your wagon coming around, they see the first horses, there's love and compassion. That's the first thing they see. And then right behind them, oh, there's equanimity and empathy, joy. Oh, you're, you're, you're being pulled, are you? And then they see the wagon and you're the, the charioteer, right? So there's the image. But now as this, as this fourfold set of steeds is pulling your wagon, your chariot, through life, maybe from lifetime to lifetime, what happens if the great steed of loving kindness stumbles, begins to fall? Well, right behind loving kindness is equanimity. And equanimity is always looking right, watching the back. I'm watching your back, watching back of loving kindness. That should you ever stumble, should you ever stray, get into any kind of trouble, I'm always watching your back, and I'm here to help you. Right? Equanimity is there to assist, to remedy, to get back on track. Loving kindness, should it ever stray. Right? Likewise, with the other lead, lead horse, compassion, should it stray, well, right behind, loving, right behind compassion is empathetic joy. Same thing. I'm watching your back, literally. Your rump is right in my face. I'm watching your back. And should you ever stray, I'm here to help you. I'm here to bring you back. So don't worry. I'm always keeping an eye on you. In fact, both of my eyes have no choice. Your rump is filling my whole field of vision. Right? But then behind, we have over here equanimity. What happens if equanimity strays? Well, compassion up there on the front right, out of the corner of the eye, but really attending closely. Hey, equanimity, if you ever stray, I'm watching you. I'm keeping an eye on you. So don't worry, I'll come and rescue you. I'll, pr I'll bring you back. So there is compassion keeping an eye on equanimity. Should it stray, and likewise for empathetic joy, if it follow falls into the fixation, goes astray into the fixation on hedonic pleasure, then loving kindness, I'm keeping an eye on you, I'll take care of you. I'm attending to you, watching over, looking after and caring for you. So don't worry, you've got a buddy. This is the buddy system of the four immeasurables. They're all looking after each other while they're all going also full, full speed ahead and pulling you through the life on a very good track. So. It may happen, finally, in conclusion, it may happen that even if you're not, not actively cultivating the four measurables, it just could happen, it's conceivable, I think, that you might on occasion fall into self-centered attachment. Thank you, I was waiting for the chuckle. It took a little bit slow in coming. Sure, I mean, people have self-centered attachment, whether they're following a spiritual path or not, they're Buddhist, Christian, atheist, we, that's part of the human condition. We tend to be prone to self-centered attachment. So in the, what I'm getting at here is we're really now coming in and the, the time is running out. As we anticipate the, the coming days, weeks, months, or decades ahead, and from day to day, if we'd like to continue in the practice of the four measurables, and you're sitting down, which one would you like to choose? Right? Now, they're all good. To my mind, it's perfectly obvious. They're all good. But you might want to take your pulse as you're sitting down, or at any time, even if you're not about to sit down, take your pulse anyway. Monitor the state of your mind with introspection. And if at any time, during the morning, the afternoon, the evening, if you find, aha, I've been monitoring the way I'm speaking, thinking, and so forth, and I see, oh, I am definitely falling into a bit of self-centered attachment, fixating on I, me, mine, I, me, mine, kind of treating other people like it's, back to that nasty, dehumanizing I, it relationship. I don't want to go there. I think it's time to bring out the remedy. It's, um, what would that be? Oh, equanimity. Good time for equanimity, right? And other times, you might just feel glum, just a bit heavy, a bit dark. 
under the weather for whatever reason, just falling in a bit of sadness, grief, or maybe even despair. In which case, aha, just taking the pulse. Time for empathetic joy. That would be a good one. At other time, you may just get caught up in just the fixation on modernity, the modernity of materialism, consumerism, all of that hedonic fixation, which is really like an, an epidemic these days. I mean, it's like viral infection that's captured most of humanity, it appears. What do I know? But there it is. It's certainly very prevalent. And when you see that you're falling, you're kind of just going with the flow. And the flow is, you know, heading off to the sewage plant. Then I don't think I want to go with this flow. Life is too short. I don't have time to kill, and certainly not kill this way. So there it is, loving kindness. Where's that wisdom of loving kindness? And that might be the best practice. And then on occasion, this happens so often, especially in the so-called service professions. I mean, every profession, including selling stationery at the Stanford bookstore, can be a service profession. But some are really highlighted as such for good reason. In the medical profession, social services, clinical psychology, and so forth, teaching, teaching, like in elementary school and so forth. Uh, these are, people don't go into it for the money. Or if they did, they were really misguided, you know? And so, but it often happens in the service professions especially. And it's just endemic, it's almost worth, not even worth saying, but burnout. Just getting singed, like just, I'm attending to other people all the time. And I think I'm drained. I think I'm just, I, I, I'm working on fumes here. And what's that song? I don't care. Phil, Phil Collins, isn't it? I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. Ever heard that one? Uh, it, but he just hammers it. I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. I'm, I, I was, and I can't do it anymore. The hell with it. I'm tired. So live your own life. Get on with it. Just don't mess with me. No? Understandable. You're tired. You're drained. You're depleted. But before you get there, you might want to recognize aloof indifference setting in and apply the antidote. Maybe for yourself first. You do care. You care about yourself. That's a given. So heal yourself. And then recognize how many other people around you are also drained, tired, exhausted, overburdened by the weight of samsara. And now arouse yourself. It's time to start caring broadly and not just narrowly. So in that way, they balance themselves out. And you can bring these in really like a skilled healer attending to your emotional state from day to day, morning to afternoon, and so forth, and seeing, are you right on course? Are you balanced? And if not, might it be self-centered attachment, grief, fixation on samsara, or aloof indifference? Might any one of those be an issue? In which case, you've got the antidote right at your fingers. So the more you've cultivated these over the last seven weeks, the more they will be your friends, they'll be your best friends, and they'll be your bodyguard for from now until enlightenment. So let's practice. And as is obvious by my, all my com comments for the last 40 minutes, it's a long time, is choose your own method, whatever right now as you take your emotional pulse. What would be most helpful? What draws your heart? And let's practice in silence. <laughs> 